Book Seven, Chapters Fifty Two to Seventy One of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book Seven, Chapter Fifty Two. Next day Caesar paraded his troops, and reprimanded them for the rashness and impetuosity which they had shown in judging for themselves how far they were to advance, and what they were to do, not halting when the signal was given for recall, and refusing to submit to the control of the tribunes and the generals. He explained that an unfavorable position made a serious difference. He had experienced this himself at Avaricum when though he had had the enemy in his grasp without their general and without their cavalry, he had foregone an assured triumph for fear that the unfavorable ground should entail a loss, however slight, in the action. He highly admired their heroic spirit, which entrenched camp and high mountain and walled fortresses were powerless to daunt, but just as hardly he reprobated their contempt for discipline and their presumption in imagining that they knew how to win battles and forecast results better than their general. He required from his soldiers obedience and self-control just as much as courage and heroism. 53. After this harangue, Caesar, in conclusion, encouraged the men, telling them not to let an incident like this trouble them, and not to ascribe to the enemy's courage a result which had been brought about by the unfavorable nature of the ground. His attention of abandoning Georgia, being unchanged, he led their legions out of camp, and formed them in line of battle on a good position. Still, Vercingetorix did not venture down on to the level. A cavalry skirmish followed, which resulted in favor of the Romans, and Caesar then withdrew his army into camp. Next day he fought a similar action, and then, thinking that he had done enough to humble the vainglory of the Gauls and to restore the confidence of his soldiers, he marched for the country of the Aedui. Even then the enemy did not pursue. Two days later Caesar repaired a bridge over the Allier and threw his army across. 54. At this stage the Aeduans, Viridiomerus, and Epidorix approached and accosted him. He learned that Litavicus had gone off with all the cavalry to work upon the Aedui. It was essential, they urged, that they should be beforehand, in order to keep the tribe steady. By this time Caesar saw clearly from many signs that the Aedui were traitors, and he was of opinion that the departure of these men would hasten their defection. Still, he did not think it right to detain them for he desired to avoid the semblance of injustice, and not lay himself open to the suspicion of fear. As they were leaving, he told them briefly what he had done for the Aedui, pointing out how they were situated and how low they had fallen when his connection with them began, driven into their strongholds, their lands confiscated and their allies all taken from them, tribute imposed upon them and hostages wrung from them with the grossest insults. Then how he had raised them to such prosperity and power that they not only regained their former position, but acquired, in the sight of all, a prestige and influence which they had never enjoyed before. With this reminder he let them go. 55. There was an Aeduan town, advantageously situated on the banks of the Loire, called Noviodunum. Thither Caesar had conveyed all the hostages of Gaul, his grain, the public monies, and a large portion of his own baggage and that of the army. Thither, too, he had sent a large number of horses, which he had purchased in Italy and Spain for the war. On reaching the town, Epo Redorix and Viridiomerus ascertained the attitude of their tribe. Litovicius had been received by the Edui at Bebracte, the most influential town in the country. Convictor Latidus, 
the first magistrate and a large proportion of the council had assembled to meet him and envoys had been officially dispatched to vercingetorix to effect a friendly understanding an opportunity like this they thought was not to be missed accordingly they massacred the guard at noviodunum and the individuals who had settled there for trade and divided the treasure and the horses arranged for the conveyance of the hostages of the several tribes to the magistrate of Ibracte, burned the town which they considered it impossible to hold to prevent its being of use to the romans carried away in barges as much grain as they could hurriedly stow away and threw the rest into the river or burned it they then proceeded to raise forces from the neighboring districts establishing detachments and pickets along the banks of the loire and throwing out cavalry in all directions to terrorize the romans in the hope of being able to prevent them from getting corn or to drive them under stress of destitution to make for the province it was a strong point in their favor that the lore was swollen from the melting of the snow so that to all appearance it was quite unfordable fifty six on learning this caesar decided that he must act at once so that in case it should be necessary to take the risk of bridging the river he might be able to fight before reinforcements came up to change his whole plan of campaign and march for the province that he deemed was a course to which he ought not to allow even the pressure of fear to force him for the disgrace and the humiliation of retreat the barrier interposed by the savens and the condition of the roads forbade him to attempt it and above all he was intensely anxious for labinus who was separated from him and for the legions which he had placed under his command accordingly he made a series of extraordinary marches by day and night reached the loire before any one had expected him and discovered a ford by the help of the cavalry which was good enough for an emergency the men being just able to keep their arms and shoulders above water to carry their weapons the cavalry were formed in line to break the force of the current and the enemy flying in confusion at the first sight of the army he brought it safely across having satisfied its wants with corn and large numbers of cattle which he found in the district he pushed on for the country of the senones fifty seven while caesar was engaged in these operations labinus marched for lutetia with his four legions leaving the draft which had recently arrived from italy at agedincum to protect the heavy baggage lutetia is a town belonging to the parisi situated on an island in the river Seine. when the enemy became aware of his approach large forces assembled from the neighboring tribes the chief command was conferred upon an olerkin named camelogenus who though old and worn was called to this high place because of his uncommon knowledge of war observing that there was a continuous march which drained into the seine and rendered the whole country in its neighborhood impassable he took post behind it and prepared to stop our men from crossing fifty eight labinus at first formed a line of sheds and attempted to fill up the marsh with fascines and other material and thus make a causeway across finding this scarcely practicable he silently quitted his camp in the third watch and made his way by the route by which he had advanced to meteocentum a town belonging to the senones situated like lutetia of which we have just spoken on an island in the seine labinus seized about fifty barges rapidly lashed them together and threw the troops onto them the townspeople many of whom had been summoned into the field were paralyzed with astonishment and fear and labinus took the town without a blow after repairing the bridge which the enemy had recently broken down he made the army cross over and marched on following the course of the stream in the direction of lutetia the enemy informed of what he had done by fugitives from meteocidum gave orders that lutetia should be burned and its bridges broken down then moving away from the marsh they encamped on the banks of the seine opposite lutetia and over against the camp of labinus fifty nine 
By this time it was known that Caesar had abandoned his position at Gergovia. By this time, too, rumors were arriving about the defection of the Adui and the success of the Gallic insurrection, and the Gauls, in their gossip with the Romans, affirmed that Caesar was prevented from pursuing his march and from crossing the Loire, and that one of corn had forced him to make a dash for the province. The Bellavaci, moreover, who were already and spontaneously disaffected, on learning that the Adui had gone over, began to raise troops and to make overt preparations for war. Now that the situation had so completely changed, Labinus saw that he must completely alter his original plan. What he thought of now was not how to gain some positive advantage and force the enemy to an engagement, but how to get his army safely back to Agedincum. On one side he was menaced by the Velavaci, who have the greatest reputation, as fighting men, of any tribe in Gaul. On the other, Camulogenus held the field with a well-formed army, ready for action, while a great river separated the legions from their baggage and the troops which protected it. With these formidable difficulties suddenly confronting him, he saw that he must look for aid to the force of his own character. 60. Towards evening he assembled his officers, and charging them to carry out his orders to the letter, placed one of the Roman knights in charge of each of the barges which he had brought down from Meteocetum, and ordered them to move silently four miles downstream at the end of the first watch, and wait for him there. Leaving five cohorts, which he believed to be the least steady in action, to hold the camp, he ordered the remaining five of the same legion to move up the river about midnight with the whole baggage train, and make a great noise. He also procured a number of small boats, and sent them in the same direction, the roarers making a great splash with their oars. Soon afterwards, he silently moved out of the camp with three legions, and made for the spot to which he had ordered the barges to be rowed. 61. When the legions reached the spot, the enemy's patrols were surprised at their post all along the river by our troops, for a great storm had sprung up suddenly, and cut down. Infantry and cavalry were swiftly ferried across under the superintendence of the Roman knights, whom Labienus had charged with the duty. Just before dawn, and almost simultaneously, the enemy were informed that an unusual commotion was going on in the Roman camp, that a large column was moving up the river, and that the sound of oars audible in the same direction, and that troops were being ferried across a little lower down. On hearing this, they imagined that the legions were crossing at three places, and that the Romans, in alarm at the defection of the Adui, were all preparing for flight. Accordingly, they made a corresponding distribution of their own troops leaving a force opposite the Roman camp, and sending a small body in the direction of Meteocetum, with orders to advance as far as the boats had gone, they led the rest of their troops against Labinus. 62. By daybreak the whole of our troops were ferried across, and the enemy's line was discernible. Labinus, bidding the soldiers remember their ancient valor and their many splendid victories, and imagine that Caesar, under whose command they had many times beaten the enemy, was present in person, gave the signal for action. At the first onset, the right wing, where the seventh legion stood, drove back the enemy and put them to flight. The twelfth legion occupied the left. There the enemy's foremost ranks fell, transfixed by javelins. But the other ranks vigorously resisted, and not a man laid himself open to the suspicion of cowardice. Camelogenus, the enemy's commander, supported his men by his presence and cheered them on. And now, when the victory was still doubtful, the tribunes of the seventh legion, who had been told of what was passing on the left wing, made the legion show itself on the enemy's rear, and charged. Even in that moment not a man quitted his post, but all were surrounded and slain. Camelogenus shared their fate. The detachment which had been left on guard opposite Labinus' camp, on hearing that the battle had begun, went to the support of their comrades, and occupied a hill. But they could not withstand the onset of our victorious soldiery. 
mingling with their flying comrades they were slain all who failed to find shelter in the woods and on the hills by the roman cavalry labina's task was accomplished he returned to Agadincum, where he had left the heavy baggage of the whole army, and thence made his way, with his entire force, to the quarters of Caesar. 63. When the defection of the Aedui became known, the gravity of the war increased. Embassies were dispatched in all directions, the Aedui exerting all their influence, prestige, and pecuniary resources to win over the tribes, and, having in their power the hostages whom Caesar had left in their country, they intimidated waverers by threatening to kill them. They requested Vercingetorix to visit them and concert with them a plan of campaign, and when he complied, they insisted that the supreme control should be transferred to them. The demand was disputed, and a pan-Gallic council was convened at Bibracte. Delegates flocked thither in numbers. The question was put to the vote, and the delegates unanimously confirmed the appointment of Vercingetorix as commander-in-chief. The Remi, Lingones, and Treveri were not represented in the council. The two former because they adhered to their friendship with the Romans, the Treveri because they were far away and were themselves hard pressed by the Germans, for which reason they kept aloof all through the war and remained neutral. The Adui, barely chagrined at being ousted from the supremacy, lamented their change of fortune and solely missed Caesar's favor. Yet having taken up arms, they dared not sever themselves from the other tribes. Reluctantly, those ambitious young leaders, Epidorix, Veriodomaros, obeyed Vercingetorix. 64. The commander-in-chief ordered the newly joined tribes to give hostages, fixing a date for their arrival, and directed all the cavalry, numbering 15,000, to assemble speedily. He announced that he would content himself with the infantry which he had already, and would not tempt fortune by fighting a battle, for, as he was strong in cavalry, it would be quite easy to prevent the Romans from getting corn and forage, only that the patriots destroy their own corn and burn their homesteads in the certainty that by this personal sacrifice they were securing independence and liberty forevermore. Having made these arrangements, he ordered the Adui and the Segusiavi, who were contemporaneous with the province, to furnish 10,000 cavalry, which he reinforced by 800 cavalry, and placing the Epidorix, brother in command, directed him to attack the Alaborges. In another quarter, he sent the Gabali and the Arvernian clans nearest to the Helvi, to attack that people, and the Rutini and Cadurci to devastate the territory of the Volcae Aromici. At the same time, he attempted by secret emissaries and embassies to gain over the Alaborges, promising money to the leading men, and to the tribe domination over the whole province, for he hoped that they had not yet forgotten the late war. 65. To meet these emergencies, there were detachments in readiness, amounting to twenty-two cohorts, which had been raised by Lucius Caesar a general officer from the whole province, and were posted to meet every attack. The Helvi, who encountered the neighboring clans on their own initiative, were defeated with the loss of Gaius Valerius Domitorus, the first magistrate, and many others, and forced to take refuge in strongholds and behind walls. The Alabroges posted a chain of pickets along the Rhone, and defended their own territory with great care and vigilance. Caesar, being aware of the enemy's superiority in cavalry, and unable to get any assistance from the province and Italy as all the roads were blocked, sent across the Rhine to the tribes of Germany which he had subdued in former years, and called into the field cavalry with the light-armed foot which habitually fight in their ranks. On their arrival, as their horses were unserviceable, he took those of the tribunes and other Roman knights, and also of the time-expired volunteers, and assigned them to the Germans. 66. During these operations, the enemy's Arvernian forces and the cavalry, levied from the whole of Gaul, were assembling. 
Vercingetorix collected a large number of these troops, and while Caesar was marching through the most distant part of the country of the Ligones, toward the country of the Sequani, that he might be in a better position for reinforcing the province, took post in three camps about ten miles from the Romans. Summoning his cavalry officers to a council of war, he told them that the hour of victory had come. The Romans were retreating to the province and abandoning Gaul. This would secure liberty for the time, but for lasting peace and tranquility the gain was small, for they would come back in increased force and continue the war indefinitely. The cavalry, then, must attack them on the march, while they were helpless. If the infantry stopped to support their comrades, they could not continue their march. If, as he thought more likely, they abandoned their baggage and tried to save themselves, they would lose indispensable materiel, as well as prestige. As for the enemy's cavalry, they, at any rate, ought not to doubt that not a man of them would dare so much as stir outside the column. To encourage them in their attack, he would post all his troops in front of the camps and overawe the enemy. With one voice the knights exclaimed that every man must be sworn by a solemn oath to ride twice through the enemy's column, or never be admitted beneath the roof, never come nigh unto children, or parents, or wife. 67. The proposal was approved, and every man was sworn. Next day the cavalry were divided into three sections, two of which made a demonstration on either flank, while the third checked the advance of the vanguard. When the movement was reported, Caesar in turn divided his cavalry into three parts, and ordered them to advance against the enemy. The combat became general. The column halted, and the baggage was brought into the intervals between the legions. When, at any point, our men appeared to be in difficulties or actually overmatched, Caesar made the infantry advance in their direction and form in line. These tactics prevented the enemy from following up their advantage, and encouraged our men by the assurance of support. At length the Germans occupied the summit of a ridge on the right flank, dislodged the enemy, and drove them in rout, with heavy loss to a stream where Persinagorix had taken post with his infantry. Observing this, the rest of the cavalry were afraid of being surrounded, and took to flight. The whole field was a scene of carnage. Three Aduans of the highest rank were brought prisoners to Caesar, Codus, commandant of the cavalry, who had disputed the claims of Convictio Litavus at the recent election, Cavarillus, who had taken command of the infantry after the defection of Litavicus, Eporodorix, who had commanded the Aedui in their war with the Sequani before Caesar's arrival. 68. After the total defeat of his cavalry, Vercingetorix withdrew his infantry from the position which he had taken up in front of the camps, and ordering his baggage train to leave camp quickly and follow him, marched forthwith for Elysia, a stronghold of the Mandubii. Caesar removed his baggage to a hill close by, and leaving two legions to guard it, kept up the pursuit as long as daylight permitted, killing about three thousand of the enemy's rearguard, and encamped next day in the neighborhood of Elysia. The enemy were cowed by the defeat of their cavalry, the arm in which they had their greatest confidence. Accordingly, after connoitering the position, he called upon the soldiers to brace themselves for an effort, and proceeded to form a contravallation. 69. The fortress stood on top of a hill, in a very commanding position, being apparently impregnable, except by blockade. The base of the hill was washed on two sides by two streams. In front of the town extended a plain about three miles in length, and on every other side it was surrounded, at a moderate distance, by hills of elevation equal to its own. Toward the wall, on the side of the hill which looked towards the east, the whole space was crowded with the Gallic troops, who had fortified it with a ditch and a wall of loose stones, six feet high. The perimeter of the works which the Romans were about to construct covered eleven miles. 
camps were established in convenient positions and in their neighborhood twenty-three redoubts were constructed in which pickets were posted during the day to prevent any sudden sortie while at night they were guarded by strong bivouacs seventy after the commencement of the works a cavalry combat took place in the plain which as we have explained above formed a gap in the hills extending three miles in length both sides fought their hardest as our men were in difficulties caesar sent the germans to support them and drew up the legions in front of the camps to prevent any sudden attack by the enemy's infantry supported by the legions our men gathered confidence the enemy were put to flight and hampered by their own numbers got jammed in the gateways which had been left too narrow the germans hotly pursued them right up to the entrenchments the carnage was great and some of the fugitives dismounted and tried to cross the ditch and climb over the wall caesar ordered the legions which he had drawn up in front of the ramparts to advance a little the gauls inside the entrenchments were not less terrified than the fugitives and believing that they would speedily be attacked shouted to arms while some rushed panic-stricken into the town Vercingetorix ordered the gates to be shut to prevent the camp from being deserted and the germans having killed a great many men and captured a number of horses returned 71 Vercingetorix now determined to send away all his cavalry in the night before the romans had time to complete the entrenchments as they were moving off he bade them go every man to his own country and make all who were of an age to bear arms take the field reminding them of his own services he adjured them to have some regard for his safety and not to give up one who had served so well the cause of national liberty to be tortured by the enemy if they did not bestir themselves he told them eighty thousand picked men would perish with him he calculated that he had corn enough to last barely thirty days but by reducing the rations it might be possible to hold out a little longer with these instructions he silently sent out the cavalry and the second watch through a gap in the works he ordered all the grain to be brought to him giving notice that those who disobeyed should be put to death distributed the livestock of which a great quantity had been driven in by the mandubi individually among the garrison made arrangements for doling out the grain gradually and withdrew into the town all the forces which he had posted in front of it in this way he prepared to fight on and await the gallic reinforcements End of chapter 71